You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Oh, hey there. Hi. You're listening to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Lewis Kornfeld. My guest today is the great Molly Kiernan. Oh, hey there, Molly. Hi, Lewis. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Molly, tell me about you. Oh, my, oh man, what do you want to know? <laughs> well, we were just talking about, uh, can I mention the show that you work on? Oh, yeah, sure. So we were just talking about that you work on Difficult People mm-hmm. as, a, as a day job, as a production assistant. Yes, yeah. Uh, soaking up elements of, yeah. uh, uh, of the production of the show. Yeah. How did you get into that? Um, I, so I, uh, the overall production company that um, does a lot of these New York comedies, uh, one of my good friends from college is a producer on Brad City. And she, so she works for this overall company. Uh, she's wonderful. Her name's Kelsey. And um, one, I guess last year, uh, one day she posted on Facebook that she needed an assistant for like a week uh, to help her with something. And she didn't really give any details. And I was nannying at the time, part-time. So I was like, I'll do it. Um, not really knowing what I was getting myself into, but just knowing like any, uh, door into the television world is what I wanted at that time. Um, and it ended up being setting up a, like helping setting up a writer's room on Brad city. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was very background behind the scenes stuff. Um, but I worked hard and she ended up like needing me for a couple months on that job. Um, and then now that I'm kind of like at this company, I get put on different shows and I've been working for uh, one producer on difficult people for probably like four months now, mm-hmm. which is nice. Um, cause in these kinds of gigs, it's like hard to find something that you stay in for a while. Yeah. Um, so it's been good. I mean, the, the producer that I work for is, uh, great. I mean, he's never had an assistant before, so he like, he's still figuring out how to use me. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of like a lot of what I do is like helping him out with what he needs, uh, paperwork and emails and stuff like that. But then also just like walking around the office and like seeing what people are doing, um, if there's uh, someone in development that like needs coverage on scripts, I'll volunteer to do that just to like get that experience reading them and mm-hmm. like seeing what's happening in the New York comedy world, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. What a great way to, to soak in the process. Yeah. It's great. And like, if I have to be, you know, getting people lunch and stuff like that, I totally don't mind yeah. um, because I'm in, I'm in the world where I want to be. And for a long time, I, I didn't feel that way. So it was like more, it would get me down more to be doing that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, um, like no two, not that you're like in the writer's room per se, but I've heard that no two writer's room are organ writer's rooms are organized the same way on any no. show. It's yeah. like every show is a very individual thing. Yeah. Have you gleaned anything interesting from any of the producers that you've worked with or like, have you, have you, have you kind of like been surprised or been inspired by any like particular way that people are operating? Huh. That's a good question. Um, I think, I mean, one thing that's, that's cool. Like in the, at the company I work for and on the shows that I've been working on, a lot of them are these huge comedies. Like you think of Broad City and it's like everyone knows that show, at least around here, you know what I mean? It's so popular and so good. And um, these people are still just like relaxed writers that are working very hard, but are good people and are like, um, you know, throwing out ideas and working together and it, and it, uh, I'm trying to explain myself. I think like when, once I saw the process of like, uh, you know, I was working for the creative head of the company for a while. So once I saw the process of like her giving notes on scripts to writers, um, it was all very friendly and like everyone was, you know, taking each other's feedback very well. And it felt like, you know, 
similar to like when I've been in a sketch room here Mm. and we're giving each other feedback and like riffing and, and it's this environment where everyone's working really hard, but they're doing something they love. So there's this general like feeling of positivity Mm -hmm. from what I've seen, you know? Um, and again, I haven't like been sitting in the writer's room all day. Uh, and that work is long and hard. Um, but the excitement around, I've seen a lot of the excitement around the final product, which is cool too. Like I've been at, uh, recently like difficult people had a table read. Um, so a bunch of actors came in and, and read through all the episodes and like just the feeling of excitement and like hearing the laughs out loud in the room, like what a cool, uh, thing for me to witness. And like thinking about how the people who wrote those scripts and who worked on those must feel hearing those laughs for the first time Mm -hmm. from people they admire, um, is similar to like, how I felt when I first started sketchier and I was, um, you know, I was so nervous about bringing something in and then like hearing these people on my team who I really admired laughing at it. Mm. I was like, Oh dude, that's the best feeling. Yeah. And to see that that's still happening at like this higher, much more, uh, like high stress level is very cool to me. Yeah. I, I, as long as I've, you know, been like doing comedy and, and, um, you know, like I have a bunch of friends who, who are like pretty successful in commercials or, or, sure. or are on TV now, or, you know, like, it's not like I don't know people who are working, but I still very much feel like the way I felt as a kid that like, oh, that world is kind of so far away. And so like a different ball game that like, I yeah. don't know the rules of, but like, it's it kind of like in a lot of ways it is, but in a lot of ways it's not really, it, it's still just like kind of people grappling with their process of, you know, under a more severe deadline and and with higher stakes. But it's basically, I mean, these are just like regular folks doing their job. Yeah. And like when you go into like my office, you know, the writer's room is like a small part of it right now, but it's people, you know, figuring out there's, you know, everyone's in because we're starting production or we're starting shooting soon. So like, you know, people figuring out props, the art department, like all of these different, um, things that are going into it that just feel like, you know, the way an office works. It's not just like this magic that happens. It's Mm -hmm. like, no, we have to get food for people and we have to like get all these clothes upstairs and stuff. Um, you know, sometimes my whole day will just be like going back and forth from Brooklyn to Manhattan, getting, you know, stuff for whoever. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, it takes a little bit of that like idea that it's like impossible to reach these places out of it Mm -hmm. for me. Um, But I think there also is the aspect of this idea that, um, you know, like when I'm writing sketch or when I'm doing something on my own, if I'm frustrated with something or if I'm really stressed out that day, I can just be like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to do this today. Mm -hmm. Um, in this world, that's their job. Like these writers, it's their job to do that. And that, uh, when I think about that, I feel this added pressure of like, oh man, if this is what I want to do, like I better, I always have this thing where I'm like, I'm at work and you know, I'm just doing my filing or whatever. And I am looking at all these scripts and I'm like, oh God, I got to go home this weekend and like write an entire pilot or whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, which is not realistic. Mm -hmm. Um, you mean, you mean you feel that way as in like, that's something that you would rather put off, but this is kind of seeing this makes you have to work harder. Or do you mean it as in you see the way that these people work and you feel shitty about yourself and put on the (laughs) the added extra burden of, Oh man, I have to now write something. Yeah. I think it's that second one. Cause I, I'm definitely like, um, 
oriented towards getting the work I need to get done and, and going for what I want. So, you know, when I look at it rationally, like I know that's not a major concern, but when I think about, but I also am very self-critical. Yeah. So like I'm, I'm always, my biggest problem, especially in comedy is like comparing myself to other people, whether Mm -hmm. I'm improvising or writing. And I'm like, Oh, that person, whatever it is, it's like that person is doing more shows or that person is like writing more than me. I got to like get my shit together or whatever. But like, it's, it's not silly because it's like real for me, but I know that it's a process. Is the, is the, the comparison for you a quantitative, quantitative comparison or a qualitative comparison like for example yeah um i uh like i don't really measure like other people's like if somebody's doing more shows than i am i don't really like notice or care uh-huh. but um if somebody's like a lot better at physical comedy than i am <laughs> i'll be depressed for three weeks that's so funny and, yeah. and everybody's a lot better at physical <laughs> I, I don't know i think it's both yeah. i i like I do focus on numbers sometimes. I just turned 27 and like I Congrats. Thank you. Great and uh yeah, it's fun so far. <laughs> um but I'll yeah, I like do this thing where I'll be like you know, like how old is this person and how much have they accomplished in this time and yeah. it's like who cares? Like you know, it's like that is such a silly way. Again, I don't want to say silly, but like it's such a harder way for me to look at things yeah. than to just be like, okay, I'm doing this when I can on my own time and like pursuing my passions in the meantime. Cause like in the meantime, while I'm working so hard, I get to do stuff that I love, yeah, which is so cool. Yeah. But I don't appreciate that as much as I should. It's hard. Like, you know, you kind of, I don't know how you do it, but like throughout my life, I've kind of mentally set aside these like magic numbers that become significant to me. Yeah. Like, like in my mind, this is so stupid, but <laughs> Robert Altman directed Nash when he was 46 and okay. that was his breakthrough. And so in my mind, I have until I'm 46 to accomplish. And if I don't hit <laughs> it by 46, then I have to give up and start thinking about a real job, which is like, could not be more ludicrous yeah. or more backwards for many reasons, not the least of which is 46 is a terrible time to start deciding what you want to do, (laughs) but it's like hard to shake those numbers. Sometimes you just kind of like look to the people that you admire and you measure, they become the model that you kind of begin measuring yourself against or, or challenging yourself to, to, to be like, yeah, totally. It's a relief to hear you say that because I do the exact same thing. And there's so many people in this community and elsewhere that I admire that like feel like every day I'm like, Oh, what has that person done? And it's, it's never out of, uh, it's only, it's only out of self doubt and criticism, you know? And it's like, but I would never judge someone else like that. Yeah. You don't like, you you mean, mean, you don't hold somebody, you don't, you don't hold another person to that kind of standard. No, of course not. Yeah. Yeah, But like myself. Yeah. Right. Of course, you know, we're like, Oh, you know, we have to be that age. But if some, you know, if one of your friends was like, you know, doing that, you'd be like, that's crazy. Stop. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's easy to talk other people out of their own craziness. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very hard to talk yourself out of your own craziness. And like to a certain extent, I don't think you should talk yourself out of your own craziness. I think that there's a lot to be said for like, I don't know the right phrase for this because it's not coming to terms with it, but like your own craziness is a very special thing. Mm-hmm. Like there's a very important part of like your own, like, the DNA of your psyche is like locked in with like the particular way that you are crazy. And it is a problem if that becomes like 
if it's impinging on your life in a negative way. But I also don't know that a person can like banish their own craziness. You have to kind of come to like, come to terms with it. And you have to like make friends with your own craziness and, and try to convert it into like a good positive motivator rather than a, a, a negative, um, motivator. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's true. Great. <laughs> so before you were working in production, uh, you were working for a not pro- not for profit. Yeah, I I so I went to school in Indiana, and yeah. then I um, moved here, and I worked in nonprofit. I would probably for like two two and a half years. Um, the first job I had, I was an executive assistant um, for this married couple, this like very wealthy married couple that ran a nonprofit in New York. Um, a great organization. Um, the people were very difficult to work for. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the kind of thing where like I would, you know, get like emails and calls at like four in the morning and get yelled at because something went wrong and it's not my fault, but we need someone to blame, mm-hmm. um, and stuff like that. So that job wore me out. I was also new to the city. Um, and I hated being here for that period of time. Um, yeah, because I was, I was like, oh, I love this world I'm working in nonprofit, like is what I thought I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I thought I wanted to, um, be in like fundraising and charity work. Mm. And I got burnt out very quickly, especially at that job. Um, because most of it was being a personal assistant to these two people who were just had never did anything for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And having to, having to ground, having to be the, the grounding rod for their, yeah. for their bullshit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. Um, and, and it was like my first experience with sexism in the workplace. It was just a lot all at once. Yeah. And then, um, and then I worked for a wonderful organization actually called the princess grace foundation, um, which is an arts nonprofit that is connected to the Royal family in Monaco. So, uh, this nonprofit that I worked for, um, would give grants to artists in film, theater, and dance. And I was an assistant there. Um, so that was a nice experience working in nonprofit just to, um, like be in a more normal environment, but the world of nonprofit is still very, you know, um, stressful because you're always under budget. There's Mm -hmm. never, or always over budget or, you know, don't have enough money. There's never enough people. Um, so I was still kind of burnt out from that. And I started doing comedy around the same time, which is like when my life started to transition into this world. Yeah. Yeah. Was, what brought you to the comedy? Was it as oh, like a coping mechanism to, to deal with work or was it like something that you had in the back of your mind or was it part of your plan the entire time? No, definitely not. No. I was definitely like, did never thought I would be doing comedy. Um, never thought. Because I, I think when you don't do comedy, you, your idea of who's a comedian is like always the class clown, right. you know, yeah. and I was obviously never that person. Um, and I was very shy when I was a kid. And then, um, yeah, when I, my life like took a very different turn because when I, and I've talked with you about this when I was in college, um, I had an eating disorder mm-hmm. that took a long time to recover from and really like halted a lot of my life. Um, and and I was in recovery. I went to treatment and I moved to New York during that time, which is when I also had these nonprofit jobs. And those, especially that first job became like a big trigger for relapse and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. So all the while I was working at these jobs I didn't really like um, or I wasn't super happy in and trying to recover from an eating disorder, but 
still needing it as like a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was just this, like everything sucked, you know? And, um, and then when I was in treatment, uh, really separated from, I was in like residential treatment. So I was in full-time treatment for mental health stuff. And, and, and when I kind of separated myself from all the main stresses of my life or of my daily life, um, I kind of was like, oh, I'm kind of funny, which is, uh, not that I really was thinking that about myself, but people would kind of see me as like to provide some sort of relief, um, in these very like difficult weeks that we were all there. And obviously it became very close with people. And, um, I made people laugh, which was the first time I had ever done that. Mm. And then also, you know, while I was in and out of treatment in these jobs, I started listening to a lot of comedy podcasts, uh, like comedy bang bang and stuff. Mm. Cause my sister, um, is, is really into comedy, but will never do it. Older, older sister, two years older. Her name's Maura. Um, and so she like knew I, you know, I was having a tough time. And so she'd send me when I was at work, she'd send me like screenshots of like good episodes she was listening to. Um, and it was something that really bonded us. And I, but she lived in uh, Boston at the time. She's in Chicago now. Um, and so we weren't together. So I think like I really became obsessed with filling my brain with comedy, but I didn't really know much. And my sister like told me to start going to improv shows. Mm -hmm. So I did. And I was like, oh, this is so great. How did she know about improv shows? I guess like, I don't really know how, I mean, I think she just, uh, would be, would listen, would get into these podcasts and just like my sister's the type of person when she likes something, when she likes like a TV show or movie, she doesn't just, uh, figure out like stuff about the characters or the plot or whatever. She like figures out who all the actors are and like what their lives are like. So mm -hmm. I think it's kind of like the same thing. It's like, she was like, Oh, I like these people. What else do they do? Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, started learning about like UCB and, and, and stuff in Chicago. Cause she moved to Chicago soon after that. Um, and so she kind of got me into it and I would go to a few shows around here. Um, and then I just like one day I was just super like bored and lonely and, um, not that I didn't have friends here, but all my friends here were people that I knew at home, um, in Connecticut where I grew up and they were all, they all seemed like very settled in their lives, um, in a way like they were, you know, living with significant others and had jobs that they really liked. And I was like, what do I have? Mm. Um, and I didn't know. And I think one of those days where I was just like depressed and thinking about that, I signed up for a free intro class here. I just like Googled improv classes. And I was like, oh, they have a free class that I can take once and then never do it again. If I don't like it, great. Um, and I took it with Rick Andrews. This was, must've been like January, 2015. And then I signed up for a class with Hannah Chase that was starting that weekend. Mm. And that was how I started doing improv. I wonder how many people sign up for their first improv class while experiencing some form of depression. I'm willing to bet <laughs> a lot. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think like, I immediately found this community here, yeah. which I, a lot of people say, and, you know, a lot of people have also found, and I was like, uh, yeah, like these are a bunch of weirdos that I could, that are also like confused and figuring it out. Yeah. And, uh, I feel a lot more safe here, even though I'm doing this thing that makes me crazy vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's an interest. Like the, the actual doing of the work is a very vulnerable thing. And the actual yeah. doing of the work is all about confronting uncertainty. Yeah. But then the surrounding context of the people doing that work together 
is an extremely protected environment. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it's just kind of that layering is sort of an interesting thing of the unspoken agreement, or maybe the spoken agreement, since a lot of people talk about it, is a feeling of security and a feeling of safety and a feeling of acceptance so that everyone can take turns grappling with their own personal insecurities and uncertainties as we get up and try to make light of the stuff that's in our brain. Yeah. I think that's a really good way to put it. Um, I rem- yeah. I remember starting here and, and um, transitioning from being in this, I was in this treatment environment, right. Where I, um, for a long time where everything was fair game. You talked about everything. I would have like three group therapy sessions a day and then one individual session a day. Mm-hmm. So I became, even though I was such a shutdown person before that, I became very accustomed to talking about how I was feeling all the time, mm-hmm. which has really influenced how I am now. Like I will always tell people how I'm feeling, um, even if it's not a great idea at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I remember coming back to New York and being like, feeling uncomfortable because I would like go out to like the bars with my friends and like get in these really weird, deep conversations with people and then be like, that's, this doesn't feel like the appropriate place for it. Um, these are kind of acquaintances, acquaintances that don't want to know all this. And I was in this uncomfortable place of like, where can I be vulnerable? And I definitely found it here, Mm. which was really cool. And Mm. I finally, and then I found people who I could be, you know, when you're like doing scenes with people, especially in a level one class, where it's everyone doing this stuff for the first time, pretty much. Um, and everyone's scared, but then you like laugh together and you create this stuff together. That is a bond that like really solidifies friendships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you do, you kind of imprint on each other a little bit. It, it, you're all undergoing this like very scary ordeal together and you're all making it easy on each other together and you do kind of like end up imprinting those level one cohorts that you have they kind of like set the tone for yeah for the way that you approach other people for the rest of your time improvising oh for sure and I, I remember my level one class um I I walked in the first day this was at our first two classes I think were at the old training center um and I walked in the first day and there were like three or four teenagers there waiting mm-hmm. with their parents and mm-hmm. I was like what I don't this is not what I signed up for uh I'm, I'm 25. Like, this is not okay. You know? And, uh, and they ended up being like some of the best people I've met in my, you know, comedy in my time here. Um, and they were so funny and so genuine. They were like teens who had gone through Alana's teen class. I think you, Mm -hmm. I mean, I took class with you. I took a level two with With, you with with most of of those teens. Yeah. Yeah. And they're so funny and like, so genuine. I, some of them came to my 25th birthday party. Really? Yeah. Like I had, people over to my apartment and uh, Luke and Anna who are two high schoolers that were in the program, like stopped by and their parents were like, yeah, as long as you go together. Cause I was inviting my whole improv class and I was like, I don't not want to invite them. And it was just like me and my friends kind of like hanging out and, and I didn't drink at the time. So yeah. I would like felt very comfortable inviting them. And I remember my, uh, my high school, my friends from high school, like my friends from home being like, so confused. They were yeah. like, why, why is Oh, why are there 14 year olds here? And then, but then my friends from magnet were like, Oh yeah, this feels completely normal. Yeah. yeah. And it was great. Uh, it, you know, it, it's not something that happens in classes all the time. Like I've certainly seen it where, where people will struggle with, um, reaching outside of kind of their own identities when they're improvising, mm-hmm. m- meaning 
you know, I'm a 30 year old guy. I always play a 30 year old guy and I'm not capable of like relating to, to you on any other level. And for most people, that's something that with a lot of encouragement and warmth and reassurance, you can begin coaxing them out of that into just kind of doing whatever is necessary to help the people that they're playing with. Mm -hmm. And for some people, for whatever reason, it's just very hard for them to get outside of their own particular box. And then you have people who kind of realize that like, oh, I, I don't, I can be flexible enough to play people very different from myself. I can be flexible enough to play an 80 year old. I can be flexible enough to play your 15 year old best friend. I can be flexible enough to play your mom. I can be flexible enough, blah, blah, blah. You know? Right. And when that happens, when there's that flexibility and that like courage and that kind of feeling of like none of us are locked into our real life roles in this room. We're, 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 it's elastic enough for us to play. I can play whatever is necessary in order to help your idea come true right now. Yes. And then you start to see like 14 year olds and like 45 year olds just like relating to each other on like the simplest human being level and not talking to each other like a 14 year old and a 45 year old, but talking to each other, playing best friends or playing people at the end of a great date or playing um, exes bumping into each other at the grocery store or playing if a 14 year old playing an old, an old guy who is looking for 25 extra cents on the bus from someone. And it's like, there's something about just kind of seeing each other and relating to each other on that like basic level of like we're peers. Yeah. What a cool thing, right? I don't think that happens in too many places. No, very rarely. Yeah. Very rarely. And like improv is still like pretty homogenous. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's diversified a lot since I've been doing it. But even among a much more diverse spectrum of people, there's still a fairly consistent sensibility among improvisers. It's Mm -hmm. not like you're seeing a lot of like really uh, um, like unusual points of view in the improv community. It's fairly consistently urbane people with an education who who are like up to date on on what's going on in the world Mm -hmm. and have stuff to say about it you know what i mean like but within that um yeah i think when you're kind of in the uh in like the muggle world there's a tendency to only kind of spend time and only relate to people who already share the exact same sets of qualifying experiences that you share and to become kind of more and more insular with like yeah. your, your peer group or your status group or whatever it is. Yeah. I love the way in improv when it's really good and you have a great group of people together, those are much more elastic. That's, oh yeah. And you have 14 year olds coming to your birthday party and yeah. And so fun. Yeah. It's just like, it is. It's a very interesting experience uh, to connect with and become friends with people I never thought I'd become friends with. Yeah. You know, and I, I went to college um, at like a Catholic university in the Midwest. So it was all the same types of people there um, and all the same age. Yeah. And I came out of it being like, oh, is this just like what my life is now? And just like kind of just like being in this this. I don't want to say bubble because like that I'm always in a bubble, mm-hmm. but, um, uh, is this what adulthood is, you know, just like hanging out with the same people and it's not, it doesn't have to be, um, people can relate yeah. in so many different ways. 
Can I confess something to you? Please. I so I first met you in my level two class. Yeah. You were among the teenagers. Yeah. I thought you were one of the teenagers for like a month. Lewis, everyone did. Yeah. Well, I because I look young or because I hung out with them a lot. Both. Yeah. Because Aaron Gold was either our big sib in that class or our big sib in my level three with you. Yeah. Because I took both with you. And he thought I was a teenager for like the whole class. Yeah. And then uh, Jordan Randolph, yeah. who was also in one of those classes with us. I remember talking to her after <laughs> class uh, one day and I was talking to her about her indie team. And I was she and she was like, oh, yeah, we have shows like at this club or whatever. Probably like Broadway Comedy Club. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll have to go check you guys out. And she was like. Molly, can you get into a bar? And I was like, oh my God, I'm 25. But yeah, I was like really close with those teenagers. And so like, it seemed natural. Everyone yeah. was like, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm glad it wasn't just me. No, it wasn't. It was, it was many different people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, do you mind if I ask you a question about group therapy? Oh yeah, please. Um, I've never participated in group therapy. Mm -hmm. I have had people in the past tell me that part of the part of the role that improv serves in their lives is is as a not as group therapy but something kind of close to it there's like a supportiveness mm -hmm. that they kind of feel is very empowering to them so so i know that group therapy and improv are wildly different things mm -hmm. i'm curious i'm curious what makes them similar and what makes them different just because i have no oh, experience yeah. of it yeah, well, I think a lot of the stuff we were saying about being able to connect with different people um, rings true for my experiences in, in group therapy, you know, and I'll speak for myself. I've been in, in group therapy with, um, you know, all women who are struggling with eating disorders. I've been in group therapy with women and men of all different ages who are struggling with eating disorders, addiction, um, severe depression. Mm. Um, so, and, and each experience is, is obviously different, but one very common thing is that you end up becoming friends with and connecting with and supporting these people who you never thought you'd come across in your life, you know? And it's like, you know, I, w I was in one, one therapy group in New York. Um, and it was so interesting because like, you know, it was a group where I was, you know, recovering from my eating disorder. There were people struggling with severe addictions. Um, and, and, you know, severe depression. And so it was like, everyone was coming from these different walks of life and outside of therapy, people have had totally different circumstances, you know, like some people there, they were like trying to find a place to live. Um, and I was not in that situation. You know, I've been very fortunate. Um, but sorry, I'm getting distracted by the sirens. It's very loud. <laughs> and unfortunately on 32nd street, it's next to impossible for yeah. an ambulance or a fire truck. No, that's cool. <laughs> Um, but I think that it did, I did have that same feeling of like, oh, I'm connecting with these people who I never thought I'd be able to relate to and who, you know, maybe I'd judge in a different circumstance right. or, you know, have like not think to be around. Um, but I ended up, you know, being friends with these people. Um, right. Because you have something way more important than just external circumstances yeah. in common. And I think the more important thing than that too, is like, um, no matter what you're struggling with, like in those situations, you all have like core things to talk about. It's like, I didn't have an eating disorder because I didn't, I just need, wanted a smaller body or whatever it was. Like mm. there was stuff so much deeper and that's how it goes with alcoholism addiction. It's like, there's stuff underneath that, mm -hmm. um, which allows you to like form this strong bond. And I think that, uh, can relate to me to the vulnerability and improv. Mm -hmm. Um, 
just because you're putting aside that other stuff, you know, like I'm on teams with people, we have all different jobs. We have all different lives during the day. We're different ages and things like that. But you know, we're, then we play these characters. We don't know what we're going to be when we step into a scene, but we we have to work on it together. We have to be vulnerable together. Um, and it's the same as in therapy. I think the, I think the other similarity in therapy to improv is like, depending on what group you're in, it could be great or it could be really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and like how you vibe with people is a real and unpredictable thing that, um, you know, I can, I was in, in group therapy where it's like immediately I started clicking with people and became best friends with people. I was in other ones where I was like, you know, we, we all have the same, same things and, and we're talking about these things, but our energies aren't mixing for some reason. Yeah. Isn't it interesting how some people are are kind of like naturally, they have naturally have an ability to like jam your signal somehow. Oh yeah. You, You just find yourself in certain group dynamics where people are perfectly lovely or for whatever reason, you're incapable of communicating somehow. <laughs> There's just like frequencies are constantly getting mixed and you feel it. It feels like static is in the room. Yeah. And then there are other people who you may not have a hell of a lot in common, but for some reason they amplify your signal. You yeah. feel you feel somehow more capable around them and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of one of the the people I I uh I was in I was in treatment at this like this facility, I guess you call it in Connecticut. Um, and it was people, it was a place where people were struggling with all different things. And like my best friend, you know, there were women there my age. My best friend was this like 40 year old dad who, um, you know, was struggling with depression and he just like, he had two kids, like two adorable kids. And he like just wanted to be home with his kids. And he would spend his days and evenings writing all day. He ended up writing a book and publishing it by the end of his time there, or like a little bit after. And, um, that is a, he was a lawyer. Like that is a person that I would not have even crossed paths with if it weren't for this experience. And he ended up being the person I found I had the most in common with, Mm -hmm. but like, you know, there were some women there that were my age or men there that were my age that I did not vibe with. And I was like, Oh, looking at you, um, because you're my age and, and you, maybe you're in the arts or whatever. I would have thought that you would have become the person I was closest to here. We, I, I think we, we sometimes are mistaken about each other because we look to the kind of like externally identifiable mm-hmm. aspects of someone and try to like relate ourselves with that. Yeah. But as often as not like the kind of like mystery of connection between people has a lot more to do with these like inner qualities that are really hard to even identify or articulate mm-hmm. other than you somehow feel permission to, to be yourself around someone. Sometimes in a way that you didn't even realize that you weren't being yourself until you're suddenly around someone where you kind of feel that natural sense of like amplification around them. Yeah. Like whatever our differences, we have something very and very much like our inner, our inner depths are in alignment somehow. Yeah. There's a freedom to that. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. You produced a, a wonderful show oh, yeah. um, uh, out of uh, your eating disorder called uh, uh, group therapy. Oh, I didn't produce that show. Food and body. What did you do with that show? You <laughs> that, hosted that show. No, I hosted. Um, so I hosted Molly's guilt-free comedy and ice cream social. That's what I'm talking no, about. No, you're fine. You're fine. Group therapy was Amy Rose, uh, wonderful show. Jesus. Yeah. Yes. And you, you performed in group therapy. I did. Therapy. I performed in, in that show twice. Produced, so. You produced the ice cream mm-hmm. show. Yeah. 
Can you tell us about that show? Yeah. And my apologies to Amy Rowe, who I'm sure is listening. <laughs> I'm sure is angry at me. I'm sorry. Uh, no, they are both wonderful shows. Um, yeah, this this is so it was called Molly's Guilt Free Comedy and Ice Cream Social, which is too long of a name. Yeah. Um, but I didn't change it. Uh, yeah. Um, I basically um, I'm really proud of this show. It was one of those ideas that I had. Um, that was just like, oh, this is would be a cool thing to do. I don't know. Um, but I'm in a mood today where I feel like I'm just going to email and, and, and pitch it to Megan and see what she says. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm so glad I did that because she was on board immediately. And so this was a show. Um, it was a variety show. Um, and, it, it, and I wanted to do something in celebration of being two, two years in very active recovery because it's been a long struggle for me. And I finally have had two years under my belt where I was like, I don't think about my eating disorder every day. I don't use those behaviors anymore. I'm in a good place. And it's not, it's still hard, but it's not hindering my life mm. um, anymore, which is amazing. Uh, so I was like, yeah, I want to celebrate that. And, um, uh, you know, in, in, in the comedy community, I, I talk about food issues and body issues way more than I thought I would with people here. So I knew people could connect with it. Um, and I just wanted to raise money for this great organization called Project Heal, which is a, um, a nonprofit that gives grants to uh, women and men who have eating disorders but cannot afford treatment. Treatment is incredibly expensive. Mm. Um, and usually not covered by insurance, uh, or if it is, it's, it's covered on until, you know, for a few days or until you reach a certain weight, which is a terrible way Mm -hmm. to judge health and eating disorders right? or in general. Um, we'll, we'll be responsive when you're really sick. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, I would have the experience where it was like, you know, uh, I, I got like coverage when I was like really physically underweight or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, as soon as I hit a certain number, I was not covered, but I was actually like mentally needed a lot more help than I, you know, whatever, but that's a tangent. But, um, this organization, uh, provides a treat- grants for treatment mm-hmm. to those people. And, um, I, you know, I've seen firsthand, I was in treatment with a, a woman that, uh, benefited from them and I've seen for firsthand the work that they do. So I just, I, I thought let's put together a show and, and have some of the proceeds go to them. Yeah. Um, and I knew I wanted to have ice cream before the show in the lobby um, as like kind of a gimmicky thing to get people to come, but also because I love ice cream and it's a huge symbol for me mm-hmm. of my recovery and like things that I was afraid of, I can now enjoy whenever I want. Mm-hmm. And, um, they don't kill me. They don't like, they're fine. My body's fine. I can eat ice cream. Everything's okay. Um, and that's a huge thing for me. And I, that's something I talk about to people. You don't have to have an eating disorder to be like afraid of certain foods and, and to talk about like, Oh, I was bad. Cause I ate ice cream. Mm-hmm. I feel like I hear that all the time. And I, I'm like, no, no one's, you're not bad. You can eat ice cream every day and everything's you're fine. What, what, what do you think that fear is? Oh man. Um, well, I mean, I think, I think it depends where it's coming from. I think like we, well, it's, you know, we were talking earlier about numbers. We measure ourselves and our worth off of like how good and bad we've been, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's getting work done, whether it's eating a certain thing. And we get so many messages about what we should and shouldn't eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it took, it took like, uh, for me, it's it, recovering has not only been a process in changing the way I think about myself, but it's also been a way, it's also been a process of like taking all of these external messages and not believing them because mm-hmm. diet messages are everywhere. Mm-hmm. Nutrition stuff that's not uh, valuable to me or not true for me or anyone is out there all the time. Mm-hmm. 
And um, it feels so natural to be like, oh yeah, dessert's bad. Having dessert is bad, right? It's interesting because it, so there are all these messages about about health and there's messages about weight mm-hmm. and there's messages about like desirability and yeah. and you can end up being more tuned into those messages than you are tuned into your own body communicating oh, yeah. to you. Yeah. You can you can ignore the fact that your body feels fine and instead project all these like phantoms of external stimuli onto it. Yeah. And conversely, you can ignore the fact that your body feels really shitty and project yes, external stimuli onto it. I find that like a really interesting I don't know if you would call it like a flaw in our design because I do think that it has something to do with the way that we as human beings kind of get our bearings by measuring ourselves, checking constantly with external signals to see if we're doing okay. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. some, and and there are certainly people who take advantage of that to hawk their products and shit like mm-hmm. that or hawk their worldview on you. Yeah. And it kind of distorts our ability to like measure ourselves. But I find that endlessly fascinating that you can ignore communication with your own body and complete like you don't speak the language of your body sometimes you speak somebody else's language and you put that shit on yourself yeah i'm sorry to cut you off no 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 that's so true i'm just agreeing with you i um yeah i think for a long time like even the concept of eating when i was hungry was like a foreign idea to me Mm. i was like no that's not what i do i like have rules and regulations about what i eat and oh my gosh it's so crazy and when really like you just listen to your body and, and what you need and I'm not perfect at that. No one is, but, um, like, yeah, it is. It's like, why are we looking to what's outside of us to tell us what to do with ourselves? Mm -hmm. Because we're so insecure. And I do that in so many other areas of my life, but thankfully I'm not really doing that with food anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I think that like if, if a person were to completely listen to their own body and completely march to their own heartbeat, Mm -hmm. um, I, I think, probably that person would be a little bit of an outcast and probably that Mm. person would be a little bit of a handful. And, (laughs) you know, there's probably people like that who are like traipsing naked through the woods or something, (laughs) you know, just kind of like doing exactly what's right for them and and living in like perfect alignment with themselves. I'm sure that that's like a possibility. I think it's like part of the compromise that you make to like live among others is we have to kind of ignore certain things about ourselves to like, better better fit into the communal agreement that we have you know yeah so like there is a little bit of like all right i'll 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 give away part of myself to make these certain compromises so that i can be part of this larger whole but like you know at at the level where that starts to become self hatred or 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 Mm -hmm. self-negation or or just like being tone deaf to yourself you know where it starts to become like an issue that that pulls you away from your center. I don't know. I don't know yeah. what I'm saying. No, I think it's the difference between like um, uh, focusing on your own needs while ignoring everyone else's mm-hmm. and like compromising those two things, as you said. So like balancing them out mm-hmm. where it's like, like, you know, I don't think, I think we get all these messages that are telling us to like dress in a certain way, eat in a certain way, act in a certain way. And, and yes, like to some extent you have to do these basic things because we live together and we live in a society, but like most of those messages are not for your own benefit or, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Or uh, what am I trying to say? Like, you know, food as an example, it's like, 
any message I get about dieting, like that's not going to help me. And it's not going to help anyone around me Mm -hmm. because I've been in that trap before. And like, it's hurt me and like all the people that I love. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think you just kind of have to like be able to figure out like what is real and what's right for you. Um, while still thinking about, you know, all the other people that you are living with and in a society with or whatever. I mean, going back to like measuring yourself by like other people's mm. standards and values and, and, you know, I, I find myself kind of constantly preoccupied with what other people are thinking of me. Sure. Which I think most people are, are largely preoccupied with that. Um, and there can sometimes be like a problem with like wanting to be all things to all people and just wanting to like, you, you find yourself very quickly in double binds mm-hmm. because you can't make everybody happy and you can't make everybody approve of you and you can't make everybody think that you're like a stellar A plus. Yeah. And, and sometimes those double binds will lead you to like self-effacing behaviors or mm-hmm. lead you to feel like really shitty about yourself or whatever it is. And it, like, it occurred to me not too long ago how like, my preoccupation with what other people think about me is um, like shockingly self-centered and expresses total lack of empathy for what other people are actually thinking. Because if I chose Mm. to put myself in someone else's shoes and think about what they think about me, I would see a very different picture than what I'm imagining. Cause I always imagine that what other people are thinking about me implies that they're thinking a lot about me. (laughs) <laughs> yeah of which they're probably thinking the same thing that i'm thinking yeah they're wondering what other people think about them it's a very like haunting terrible thing to constantly wonder what other people think about you yeah and we all do it we so it's like it. yeah well that person's just thinking about themselves i feel like that i'll feel like that on stage like uh you know if i've performed in a show and i don't feel great about the show i'm like everyone noticed that one thing I said that did not get any laughs and like blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And then I think about shows I've seen and I'm like, that's, I don't walk away from shows being like that one person uh, made that move. That was like a little weird. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like, no, I'm worried about myself and like where I'm going after the show and and like what I thought was funny. Um, But it can feel incredibly, even like when you're playing on stage with a team, like if, if your night's off or whatever, and if like you guys just aren't gelling for some reason, that's when you like, that's for me, that's when I like fall into myself and mm-hmm. then become like self, self-centered in a way that's like uh, self-critical and self-centered on mm-hmm. stage. Mm-hmm. Then I'm like not in it, you know? It's one of the things that I, I think is like a very healthy thing about um, practicing improv mm. that you do get to confront constantly this situation uh, of other people dealing with how you imagine other people are seeing you and, and thinking about you because like th- that's other people are looking at you yeah and thinking about you that's, yeah that's there's the a real part of that and, and learning how to kind of put that aside and learning how to go for go for your choice mm-hmm. and, and learning how to how to take your choice off of the other performers on stage and, and, and understand where they're leading you and follow their lead and, and know that you're doing it all for other people's consumption. You have a certain amount of control over that. This thing that, I mean, you know, secretly we all in our mind are kind of performing for an imaginary audience most of the time anyway, in ways that are probably, sometimes very useful and probably sometimes very 
um, counterproductive. Yeah. But like in improv, you get to learn how to kind of control that a little bit, how to, how, how to take the reins on that and not let it kind of boss you around, which yeah. would be really nice. There's also like a, a really interesting, there are certain shows where I'll find that I'm hyper aware of what the audience must be thinking and are they liking this and mm-hmm. do they like me and is this funny and are we making the right choice and is this, <laughs> and it's like this almost like hyper colorful version of like what goes through my mind most of the time, most of the day anyway but in real time in front of real people. Yeah, which is terrifying. Terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. And then there's like other shows periodically where you'll experience this like amazing sense of, I'm not sure how to say this without sounding kind of like an asshole, control over the audience. And not Mm -hmm. like, not like in, in the way that like a stand-up will sometimes kind of assert dominance over audience, but just like in a way very gently of like, oh, everyone is following my every move right now. Yeah. And I don't feel weirdly like I'm performing at them or doing this for approval or doing this to be liked. There's just this weird kind of sense of like um, playfulness between, between you and the audience, this yeah. weird sense of give and take of like they're with me. Yeah. I don't care what they think about me anymore. I'm not trying to impress anybody. I'm just kind of, it's like when you're playing a little game with like a baby, if like a baby's looking at you and you blink at the baby and the baby blinks back <laughs> and then you realize you're in this kind of like, you're in this relationship. That's kind of what it feels like when you're in control of the audience. Yeah. And then that's the, cool. it goes away that feeling of like, well, do they like me? because asking that question in that moment is as stupid as asking, does this baby approve of me right now? It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. We're playing with each other. We're yeah. in like, we're in lockstep with each other right now. It's a very magical feeling. Yeah. It's cool. One of the best shows I, I had, or like one of my favorite memories from a show is um, performing a level six show. I was doing a scene. I loved my level six team. There's uh, we were called big universe. Um, I was doing a scene with Sam Johnson, who I'm also on mm-hmm. Eve's my indie team with. And um, it was like, it was a fun, like gamey scene, like later in the set. And we were having a bunch of walk-ons in and out. And I said, a, I remember like the audience was liking it. Like they were already with us for that show. And I said a line that was like, not funny. It was just kind of like moving the game forward or whatever. And so the audience didn't respond, which is expected. But then one guy in the audience who I think was a parent of someone there laughed out loud and repeated the line I had said out loud to the silence of the rest of the audience, which like just made everyone kind of explode. Like it was just this like moment that like broke the show open um, because we, I was like, this audience is definitely with us. Um, And I like the rest of the show I remember was like so silly and fun because like we, I, it felt like, it felt like this shared thing Mm -hmm. with the audience rather than just us on stage trying to impress people. And I was like sillier than I've ever been. And like, it was so fun. Yeah. Yeah. That that's like the most, all of your worries disappear in that situation. Yeah. That's the most magical when someone, especially if no one's laughing and one person's tickled to death. It's like, (laughs) forget it. You can't do wrong after that. It, it it that I would I, I would rather have that situation than the whole audience laughing at something that's like yeah. so funny and perfect and amazing for one person to to 
zero in on what you just did. Yeah, it's great. And it's like, why you don't know why that happened, but yeah. like why you connected with that person, but you did. Yeah. And it just kind of like sets you free in this weird way. I I read a, an interesting quote by Keith Johnstone um, in a book, Impro for Storytellers, where he, he, mm. he gave a piece of advice to his actors to try taking the stage um, and uh, to try to be surprised when you get out there that the audience is friendlier than you expected they would be. Mm, yeah. And it was like a, a tip that he gave some actors who he felt were like coming across as too stiff or too in their head. Um, which is actually like a really great piece of direction because it it, um, it, it kind of shifts your priorities when, when you're improvising from from this place of I have to impress. You're improvising as if you're auditioning, as if people are going to mm. grade you on your performance. Mm-hmm. And I have to impress these people. I have to make an impression versus this other point of view of, oh, these people are so much friendlier than I expected and they are with me and they like me yeah, and they're listening to me. And so the priorities become so different. It's no longer about showing what I can do to you. It, it It's about saying what I have to say now suddenly. And that's a very yeah. different, psychologically, a, a very different, very different place to be. Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, the goal, if you think of improv as like a, a, a form of like folk theater and a form of like a communal endeavor, and you think of the audience as, as having a role in the room more than just sitting there to be entertained, mm-hmm. but their role is, is kind of like the silent collaborators in the room. They're, they're, their job is to see what you're creating as you're creating it. Their yeah. job is to kind of like silently participate with you. I think of it in those terms. I think that does kind of become the goal of improvisational theater is it's not just a recitation of this thing that we have practiced. And now we are showing you this expert product that we can offer. Yeah. We're inviting you to join us uh, in this give and take together. We're inviting yeah. you to be part of our process. Yeah. And it doesn't always happen, but no, yeah, <laughs> no, it, far, far from it. Yeah. I think like, I, I also find a big difference when I'm performing for people that I know, like a magnet audience, I'm going to know a lot of people in the audience. Yeah. Um, if it's megawatt or something, well, a lot of students who I might not know, but, um, it's like friendly faces mm-hmm. versus when I'm, uh, performing for people that I don't know. Yeah. Um, I found that performing for people that I don't know, there's like, there's a little bit more of like a liberation to it. Mm-hmm. Cause there's this idea of like, oh, I'm never going to see these people again or whatever, you know? Um, and it, it like frees me up a little bit. Yeah. Um, cause I'm constantly worried about what the people in my life think about me. Uh, yeah. so yeah. So like, it's, it's a little bit, there's like this feeling of like, oh, we're just having fun with like these other people that we don't know, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, but then when, when I, you know, sometimes when I perform for audiences that I know it's, it's, it's really fun and friendly and, and, and I find that like a magnet audience is very supportive. Um, it can be lower energy or whatever. Um, and you know, those are the nights where you just have to go and be like, okay, I'm doing this with my team. Um, and like focusing on them, Mm -hmm. which I guess should always be what you do. I don't know. It should be. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes you don't, I mean, you get into trouble a lot when, even though you're talking to the other people on stage, your primary relationship is with the audience. Right. You're, you're trying to, I mean, that's the idea of like, don't try to be funny, which is, is not the world's greatest note Mm -hmm. because we are in fact trying to be funny. That's like our goal. That's the point. Yeah. (laughs) But 
don't work at being funny, just yeah. sort of like be funny. You know what I mean? Like another way of expressing that note. And I think a more practical way of expressing it is that when a person is trying to be funny, they are attempting to affect the audience and the partner just happens to be a middleman between you and the audience. Yes. When a person's not trying to be funny, they are attempting to affect their partner. And as a byproduct of that process, the audience is entertained by what they're doing. Yeah. By what they're doing. Yeah. And you can feel it in yourself when I'm more tuned in, I'm picking up on every nuance, every shift in the audience, every little cough, every, every person sighing mm-hmm. or closing their eyes. I'm totally alert to that. And I'm missing everything that my partner is doing right now. Yeah. I'm hearing the words, but I'm missing those micro movements that are so important. I'm keyed into the audience and worried about why they're not responding. And I'm yeah. not keyed into my partner. When I feel that way, a good note I heard is you just got to pretend that the audience is a fly on the wall, that they're eavesdropping. You're mm-hmm. not doing it for them anymore. They're just kind of, they're like strangers in a room. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I still have trouble like separating myself. I never really know when I go into a show, like, I don't know how I'm going to, how I'm going to like feel once I get on stage, yeah. which is nerve wracking. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I I think this idea, yeah, this idea of like not necessarily not trying to make people laugh, but like I think when I started improv I was like, "Oh, I don't know how to like make jokes." Mm-hmm. That's not what I feel like I'm doing. I feel like I'm like when I'm performing scenes that are getting laughs, it's because I'm saying something really relatable mm-hmm. um or like a just a real thing that's like funny to hear up on a stage. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, I think like I forget where I was going with this, but um when I'm, yeah, I think like, a, the, I, I just took a, I can't stop thinking about this workshop. I just took with Christina Gaussis. Um, she's the best. Mm-hmm. And, uh, every scene started super grounded and super real and was like, not trying to be like, like she did not want us to initiate with like something exciting or, um, like that was going to make people laugh right away. And every scene was insanely good and mm-hmm. so funny because like when you stop worrying about that, right off the bat, like we're smart people. We're improvisers. We know how to point out like what's funny and what's weird about whatever scene is happening. It's like, just let yourself get there without freaking out. And I think that's where I get tripped up is I'm like, I don't let myself get to that point. I'm like, I gotta be funny right this instant. Yeah. Um, I may have already mentioned this on the podcast, but a, a quote I came across recently from Bill Arnett in Chicago that I really liked did I tell you this quote about the roller coaster? I don't know. People will be more than happy to go to a theme park and wait in line for a long time to get on a really kick-ass roller coaster, mm. but they'll be much less happy to go to a theme park immediately, get on the roller coaster, and then wait in a long line to get off the roller coaster. The build-up to the wonderful thing you're willing to endure, not having the most exciting time in the world. Yeah. But when you've had the most exciting time in the world, you don't want to fucking wait now no and i think it's easy to forget that in shows sometimes that because because you don't know how you're going to feel when you hit the stage which is absolutely true yeah how you feel backstage is no indicator of how you're (laughs) going to feel the moment you take that stage and you just never really know what that's going to be because you never know that and 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 because some nights you're a little bit more thrown than other nights by this kind of need to impress or 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 worry about what other people are going to think or or whatever right whatever's Mm -hmm. going on with you you can hit the stage wanting to immediately dazzle and forget uh, that like it's actually worth 
waiting. It's better to wait a little bit. It's yeah. better to give something people something that they can believe in and relate to and yeah. get to the ride of the scene rather yeah. than start and then have nowhere to go and find that the rest of it is like kind of wasting everyone's time because you're fishing for ideas yeah. instead of believing what you created. Totally. Yeah. I'm going to be like, if I'm watching a show, I'm going to be so locked in if uh, I already know that those characters are really connected to each other somehow. And it yeah. doesn't matter if they're being, if the improvisers are being funny or not. If I'm like, Oh, I'm watching two characters that love each other. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm in it. This yeah. is already something I I'm on board with instead yeah. of being like, Oh, I'm just watching two improvisers like in their heads, mm-hmm. which I have been many times. So me too. you know, yeah. Are you, uh, are you superstitious? Like, do you, do you worry about how you feel before shows or do you not care? I think I worry a little bit for a while. I was trying like audio, uh, uh, meditation stuff, like, yeah. uh, to like ground myself because yeah. I can get, it depends on the show too. If it's like a megawatt show, I'll be like more anxious before it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and, and so sometimes I'm like, okay, I, I need to ground myself and I want to take like deep breaths. And, um, I, I feel my anxiety, um, in my head, but also very physically. So I'll like get those butterflies in my stomach, like an hour before. And I'm like, Oh, these are like very strong today. I need to take some deep breaths or whatever. Yeah. Um, I also try like not to drink too much caffeine when I have a show or something, stuff like that. Um, which I think are more like not superstitious, but like more practical ways to deal with anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not. Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, yeah, if I've had like a shitty day or I'm really tired, like I feel bummed sometimes going into a show. Cause I'm like, Oh, what if I, what if I can't think or like react? That's a big fear of mine. And I've, and it's a fear that's come true a bunch of times that like, yeah. I, just, I don't have anything in my mind tonight for whatever reason, my mouth isn't forming words. Well, yeah, I'm not stringing together sentences and like it or not, I'm just off tonight. There's nothing I can do about it. Yeah. And I wish I could say that accepting that in the moment makes it easier, but it doesn't. You really just kind of feel like, Oh boy. No, it makes it really hard. Very hard. Yeah. I've, um, I felt that, uh, my current team, the heel, um, we done a bunch of mono scenes, um, and I, and, and they've been really fun. Um, but there's definitely been times where I'm like, oh fuck, I don't love this character that I'm playing. And now I'm playing this character for 25 minutes. Mm -hmm. And that gets me like in my head. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, I'm, what am I going to do? And and you kind of freeze. Um, and it's like very, I don't know. I'm told like when I get off stage and I talk to someone about it, I'm always told that like, I don't appear that way, that I don't come off looking very anxious. And I'm like, how I was so, I felt like I was frozen on stage and they're like, no, you weren't. I get that a lot too. Boy, you look so calm up there. (laughs) Really? Oh man. No, no, no. I get that in my life a lot. Like I, I'm a very anxious person. I'm anxious all the time and everything like also like a very sensitive person. So like I cry a lot, like all this stuff. And, um, and someone at work, like my job's like not very hard right now, but it will, you know, I'll get anxious. And I just know that about myself. And this, this woman at work came up to me and was like, Oh Molly, I always see you like around doing all this stuff. And I was like, Oh yeah. Like I, you know, I keep busy or whatever. And she was like, well, you have the right demeanor for like a a crazy job like this. And I was like, and I was like, thank you. And in my head, I was like, what the fuck? Like, I am not that person that's like cool and chill and relaxed. But I guess, I mean, you you have to function. So you learn how to act that way. Yeah. Even though you're dying inside. <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, there's a, there's a gap between what you kind of give out and, and what you're experiencing inside. Yeah. And, and like, 
I, I wonder like at, at what point do you just kind of accept that like, all right, this chronic anxiety that I'm feeling all the time or this chronic insecurity that I'm feeling all the time, is this something that I'm meant to try to like get rid of? Or at what point do you kind of accept that like, oh, I guess being alive kind of feels this way. Yeah. I think it's both, right? I think it's like, I don't want it to be at the point where it's crippling, yeah. but uh, some of this nervousness or this like enthusiasm is what drives me. Yeah. You know, it's like, you talk about perfectionism. Like I've, I've always been like a perfectionist and it's like, yeah, that has driven me to do some really cool stuff. And it's also made me feel crazy and yeah. feel miserable. So you have to like find the balance. Yeah. It, it, it can't be incapacitating. Yeah. And it can't be overwhelming. Yeah. But I think like for me, I'm not a perfectionist by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. And even in my most mellow moments, if I really am quiet and kind of tune into myself, I realize I'm feeling terribly anxious. Yeah. Even at my most mellow yeah. And like every now and then the thought crosses my mind of like, I guess that's just like the spark of life. You just kind of have like uh, electricity flowing through you. And yeah. it kind of feels a little bit like, oh, that's what keeps you moving is this dynamic tension. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder, I'm like, what is it like to not be an anxious person? Yeah. And then, and I'm like so jealous of those people. And then I realize I don't really know a lot of people that are yeah. not driven by like nervousness, <laughs> anxiety a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, so I'm like, maybe that person doesn't exist. I yeah. don't know. I I couldn't possibly say. That's part of like the, yeah. the one of like the, the the mysteries of of life is realizing that the best that we can do is empathize with each other and approximate and take yeah educated guesses about how how other people are feeling. But ultimately, your life, your consciousness, your feelings, your subjective, what have you ultimately that's yours and yours alone. Yeah. No one will ever know what you're feeling and you will never know what anyone else is feeling. It's just yeah. impossible. It's too internal. Yeah. It's, it's like scary and it's also cool. Yeah. Uh, I think that's like a cool thing about improv too is like, it's weird that like I can get on stage and feel really anxious and then have someone tell me after that I did not appear that way. Yeah. But it's also like cool in a way that it's like, if I mean, if I can, you know, if I can channel that, that those feelings into like a really confident, bold character, it's dope. It's like so fun. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I was a different person. Like, you know, there are some days where like I'm feeling really bummed and then I have a show that's like I just let go of that. And I'm not always great at doing that. But like when I'm able to do it, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is why I'm doing improv. Like, yeah. That is everything I needed to just turn this day around. Well, I think it's like something about acting in general yeah, is it's the closest that you get to really understanding what it feels like to be somebody else by constructing <laughs> this fake person inside of yourself. Yeah. And, and every now and again, I had a show last week where it, for, for like 15 minutes, I was like playing in this like body language. That's not my body language. And, and I was kind of looking off a lot and there was like clearly something going on inside my character that I hadn't like decided what it was. I uh-huh. was kind of like, went with it a little bit and spent 15 minutes kind of like putting together these little tiny clues and then like 15 minutes into the show, suddenly realizing what was going on, why my character was feeling so preoccupied and it happened to never come out in the show. What was it? It it wasn't about the show. This guy had had like a very like storied past and he had, 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 um, uh, uh, like done something pretty awful to 
his brother-in-law that caused like a rift in his family. Okay. Um, and so like, he was kind of like disowned by his family and spent a couple of like hard years. This is all like ridiculous. Wait, so this, none of this was said in the this, show. No, this wow. was all like backstory that was like going through my mind as That's the cool. show was going on and just kind of like justifying all these different things that were happening and like making sense of it and sort of realizing, oh, this is what's going on. And like the backstory I'm saying, it sounds like ridiculous no. saying it, but like having it in my mind was super helpful. And it just so happens that the show wasn't about that. So it was like, it doesn't have to come out. But like by yeah. the end of the show, I really felt like a different person. That's cool. And I think that that's like part of like one of the compelling things about acting as like an activity that we engage in is it, it gives you that ability. It comes close to feeling like um, our own subjective experience you create a little bit more room for it. We're not just locked into our own private experience, but we can share other people's experience from time to time. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I've never had that experience. And I mean, I have to, to, you know, a lesser degree in improv um, in terms of like a backstory and, and stuff. But I found that when performing characters that I've prepared ahead of time um, at sketch shows and stuff, I will like still be in that physicality for a while after the show. If yeah. it's a, if it's a very like different physicality than my own, as you said, which is funny and cool. Like I, I, uh, played a character once that like, she was like, kind of, she was like kind of like a Valley girl. And she like always, whenever I play like that type of character, for some reason, I always have like my arms up in the air, like mm. flailing around, which is like, I don't know where I got that from. That's kind of what I do when I like dance. Cause mm. I'm a terrible dancer, but maybe it comes from that. No, no, <laughs> nobody's a terrible dancer. That's true. Everyone's a fun dancer. Everyone is a great dancer. Yeah. Okay. And then some people are, are. Some people are like legit good. great dancers, yeah. but everybody's a great dancer. Okay. That's, I will buy into that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so I was like, it was this character who like always had her arms up in the air and it was like so fun to play. She was like moving all over the stage and, um, I just like, couldn't really break it. I was like waiting for the train with uh, my boyfriend, Dimitri. And he was like, stop, like, yeah. put your arms down. <laughs> what are you doing? Um, but that's fun. Like, that's cool to be so locked into something like that. Well, it's like when you get like a hit off of a character, especially if a character has a fun energy to them. Yeah. You get, it, it's like hard to come down from that a little bit. Oh, totally. Which is really cool. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's super cool. And it helps to like go into a scene like that. Just go into a scene like with a little bit you know, nothing crazy, but like a little bit in my shoulders or like whatever, um, uh, standing taller than I normally do. Mm -hmm. Um, like leaning, if I'm like leaning against a wall or something, like it's just little things. And I'm like, oh yeah, that now I feel different and I forget to do that sometimes. And Me it's too. so fun and helpful. It is. Yeah. I, I think it's important to leave a little bit of a gap between yourself and the character that you're playing. Yeah. And then, and then as the show goes on, you can let that gap clothes you can mm. kind of find how you're like this person mm -hmm. but it, it can be like a little bit tricky to play so close to yourself that you end up like not knowing what part of yourself is in the driver's seat yes and then you're just kind of like blah i, I get stuck in that a lot that's Me a bad too. habit of mine and everything is sort of neutral and sort of fine you just kind of make the best of everything yeah because be, i think being yourself in like a scene that's not real life is like oh i don't how do i feel about this stuff yeah. i don't know because it doesn't feel real to me because i'm playing myself in exactly. this this world that's not real but it's like if i yeah i get stuck in that all the time where it's like oh i don't i don't know i think i think like because because uh you know our, our indie team eves which you wonderfully coach uh 
uh, we do like, uh, you know, grounded scenes up top where we're kind of like sitting. And, and I think where, when we have trouble in scenes, it's because we like, we don't get out of ourselves at all. Mm -hmm. But I remember like we did one show where we were like playing like mobsters or something. Like it was like a, an extra silly show for us, but we all started telling dating stories, like first date stories. And, uh, we get off stage and we were talking about it and we were like, oh, those were all just real stories yeah. that we like told in this other character's voice. So I think that's a good, and it was so fun. And I yeah. think that's a good example of like, we were, we separated ourselves from our characters and then we were able to like use our real lives to go back and like make them relatable and like really weird, yeah. which was cool. That's what's so, if you're making it up wholesale, it can feel hard. Yeah. If you're playing just totally yourself, it is hard. But when you kind of have that little gap, you have that distance and there's stuff that's definitely not me. It's in my body. It's in my voice. It's in my whatever. Mm -hmm. But then I tell a real story about myself through, through this guy's voice. Yeah. So my first girlfriend, you know, and it, like this like real magic alcohol happens where, where suddenly you just kind of feel like, oh, it's just flowing out yeah, of me right it's now. It's so fun. Yeah. It's a blast. Yeah. Uh, or yeah. Or if you mess up, if you're like in a, if I'm like in a character that's like really different from me and then I like mess up and I don't know the meaning to a word or I like get something wrong and that's me doing that, then yeah. it's like extra funny because then I have to justify like why this character, um, doesn't know what a reference is or like whatever, totally, you know, whatever yeah. it is that's happening, which is much more fun than me totally. not knowing a thing. <laughs> totally. Yeah. You also feel, it feels a lot easier to make mistakes when it's not like, if it's me making a mistake, I feel bad and I feel like my reputation is somehow soiled and I feel like people are whatever. Yeah. It's just back to that thing of like, what do other people think about me? Fucking haunted by that. Oh God, it's, it'll forever follow me. <sighs> I'll tell you, I read in uh, Martin Buber, I think wrote an essay on the book of Genesis and when Adam and Eve first ate the apple of knowledge and okay. the very first thing that they realized was that they were naked. And uh, Martin Buber pointed out that the very first thing that happened after eating the apple was they saw themselves through someone else's eyes. You can only uh, realize you're naked when you start to think about how do I look to other people. Totally. I found that very wise. Yeah. It's in our DNA as people to just be forever haunted by this thing of what how, other people think about me. How terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Finding this like fun backdoor in the way that we perform, man. That's, that's the thing. But when it's yeah. like somebody else's attitude and suddenly you're fucking up, it's like a blast. Yeah. I'm not responsible. I don't care. I can, have, I can have fun with it. I can play with this mistake rather than drown in this mistake. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think that makes a huge difference yeah. for me. It's so, yeah, it's so fun to just be like a bold character who's like, doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. And it's like, that is so far from me as a person. Totally. That it's like, yeah, I feel like I can say whatever I want right now. Yeah. Which is really fun. Eves has a show coming up. You host a show. Yeah. Three's Company. Yeah. I got that one right. Yeah, you did. Tell us a little bit about Three's Company. Uh, when Three's can Com we see it? Uh, three, well, three's company, we're having a show on Sunday, I think. So that'll might be, this will be in the past. This will be in the past. So oh, weird. Very weird um, yeah, but I, well, I will probably try and do more. So three's company is a, is a trio show modeled after the duo show here at the magnet. Um, we're, we're having, uh, uh, this particular show, we're having four trios, including ourselves, um, perform lovely. And it's been so fun. We've done two of these shows and it's really nice, um, to get 
uh, trios from around. We usually try and have like a few magnet teams and then a few teams uh, from other theaters around the city just to mix it up. Um, and people have such different forms and styles. Uh, our last show, we had a, a was it our, we had the mannequin room, I think at, or mannequin, is it mannequin room or the mannequin room? The, the mannequin, mannequin room. room. Um, at one of our shows, I can't remember if it was the first or second. Um, and, and, uh, you know, we also had like the unicorn women at that show, which mm. is three women who improvise dressed as unicorns, mm. Christine, uh, Mary Bridget and Virginia, which is so funny. And like every, but it, you know, it's just like everyone just had a different style and like a different energy. And it's, it's just so fun to watch how people play together, especially when you're watching smaller teams, because you really see how they vibe. Yeah. Um, we had a reckless team that joined us for one show and it was like, they were so physical and, and they were kind of like rolling around on the stage and, uh, it was really fun and silly. And, and we had, we've had other teams that are a lot more grounded and like play, uh, I don't know how to clarify it, but you really can see people's styles when it's a smaller team, which is cool and fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, so check it out and look on the schedule yeah. for it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, company folks. Yeah. So that's coming up and then I, um, the sketch season is starting soon. So I'll, yeah. So people can look out for those shows. Nice. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Do we have time for a scene? We do. Do we have a suggestion cool. for a scene? Kind of. Evan's giving me a face like kind of. All right, Molly. Maybe. We do. I got a thumbs up. All right. All right. We're going to do it. We haven't done this for a few episodes. Ooh. We're coming back to a game that I like to call a very serious scene, opposite of jar of pickles. Great. It works like this. Here's a jar of pickles. Okay. You're going to pretend that this is your scene partner. And you're going to do a very serious scene to the jar of pickles. Love it. Do you guys use the same jar every time? Sure do. Great. But the nice thing about pickles is I don't think they ever go bad. Really. As is that true? Well, if you don't break the seal. I think pickles are more like a shelter food. If you ever oh, have yeah, to be okay. in a bomb shelter, get some yeah. pickles. Pickles are great. Yeah. I love them. Yeah. All right, Molly. Let's hear it. What's the, okay. What's our suggestion? I'm going to repeat this. Okay. Molly, in this scene, you are a lawyer and you have to tell your lawfully accused, your, uh, uh, your wrongfully accused client, this jar of pickles, that you lost their case. Who's the suggestion from? This is from Arthur Velwes. Oh, thanks, Arthur. At the Arthur Show on Twitter. Thanks, Arthur, for the suggestion. So this is my wrongfully accused client. Wrongfully accused client. You know that this jar of pickles is innocent. Okay. You promised them that you would get them off. I'm adding that bit in because I like I like circumstances. You promised yeah. them that you would get them off. And now you have to humbly uh, approach them and, and let them know you have failed them. Okay. They're going to jail. Okay. Molly Kiernan, take it away. Great. Um, jar of pickles? Uh I don't really know. I don't really know how to how to say this. Um, you know, when you, when you've been working for something your whole life, and and then you just feel like you failed and you've let everyone down, and 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 you don't know where to go from there. That's what I'm feeling right now. So, before I tell you this, know that I'm feeling this too, um, and and I am struggling. Um, I could not win the case for you. You have lost money and I have lost money and you are going to jail. I am not, but I still feel bad. I'm sorry, Jar of Pickles, um, because uh, 
the worst part of this is that I'm going to move forward and you're not, but I'm always going to think of you and, and how much I failed you and let you down, uh, because, um, you're going to be in jail forever. As is. Wow. <laughs> wow. Pickles got life in prison. Yeah. I don't, I don't know, uh, what jar of pickles did i hadn't figured that out that's okay you don't need to know yeah. that's, you don't need to know evan yeah. i'm gonna go ahead and say this is our best serious scene <laughs> yeah. i'll tell you i like the way that you were like slipping into the jar of pickles it was an apology but also kind of yeah. not an apology there i mean too. that's that feels real though it's like you do something really shitty and like you're still eventually going to move on with your life oh if yes you fucks that person over oh yes so you know oh yes yeah molly kiernan i'm going to have you re do another scene with this jar of pickles really yeah same thing. This is still your wrongfully accused client. Okay. But this time you're a lawyer who also is in the mafia. You're a mobster Oh, lawyer. great, great, great. <laughs> Very serious scene with a silly okay. voice opposite a jar of pickles. Mobster lawyer breaking the news. <laughs> and not a, not a lawyer of the mob. A mobster who is a lawyer. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> breaking the news through jar of pickles. Hey. Uh, <laughs> Hey, jar of pickles. Uh, you know that feeling you have when <laughs> you feel like you've been working for something your whole life, uh, and you think you're gonna you're gonna finally do something good with your life. You're not gonna kill people. You're gonna win someone a court case. <laughs> and you know that feeling how good if you don't know it because I'm the one that has it. But I felt that, and I, that's why I worked so hard for you, and that's why I promised you on my life that I would win this case for you. And uh, I did not. I want you to know that I did not win this case, and uh, you're going to jail. And I know I promised my life, but come on. I can't do that. I'm sorry. You did the thing, you know? So just remember that I'm going to move forward, but I'm always going to think about you. Okay, I love you. <laughs> and say, and that's a very serious scene performed as a, as a mobster who is a lawyer. I love that you made me do that. That was fun. Fabulous. <laughs> so I just want to see that character continue. What a great, fun gangster oh, character. Thank you. I like that this person decided killing isn't satisfying me. Maybe defending others will do it. Yeah. Maybe standing up for other people. That's a nice yeah. character. I know, but now that character is probably going to go back to their old life. Absolutely. Yeah, it's going to be a relapse sucks. for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Happens. It does. Yeah. <laughs> Molly Kiernan, thank you for talking. This oh, has been a delight. thank you for having me. Pleasure. It was wonderful. Oh, yeah. Yeah, thank you to Evan as well. Oh, yeah. Thank you to Evan, who's our producer, Evan yeah. Ford Barton. And while we're on a thankful role, how about we thank our executive producer, Ed Herbstman. And while we're still thanking people, <laughs> I'd like to go ahead and thank all of you for listening to this podcast. Honestly, without you listening to this podcast, it would be like the sound of one hand clapping, really. Mm. You know. Uh, so thanks for doing it. If you liked it, please give us a positive, mention us in a positive spirit on social media. Give us a review and whatnot on iTunes. And you know, you know how it goes. Do that thing. You guys are great. My guest today has been Molly Kiernan. Molly, you're a wonderful person. Oh, you're a wonderful person. Thank you so much. So, thank you. Thanks, Molly. Yeah, thank you. Goodbye, everyone. Good. Bye. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. 
This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.